I want to give the audience a song that they can perform. Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Let them be part of the band. So what can they do? Imagine thousands of people doing this in unison. Huh? Well, what's the lyric? In Brian Singer's Bohemian Rhapsody 2018, Rami Malek perfectly mirrors Freddie Mercury, lead singer of the rock band Queen. The accomplishment can be verified through online records everyone can access, although there is no way to gauge whether Malek's Oscar-winning performance is accurate in the sense of getting into the nitty-gritty of who Freddie Mercury really was. Why? The biopic's source is dead, and we can trust witness statements only so far before healthy skepticism requires us to wonder what point of view is being projected, however benign. Still, we can assert that Malek's performance seems awfully sincere. The proof begins with side-by-side stills of the actor and his subject, wherein we see enough similarity so that a novice would be hard-pressed to know whether an image is the authentic article or a beautifully rendered facsimile. In this striving exactitude, Malek is excellent. He performs Mercury's nervousness and confidence equally well, wearing prosthetic teeth that he covers with a lowering tilt of his head. He also transforms his hair with wigs, and he put his body through intense choreography and a strict diet to give a photogenic likeness of Queen's frontman in many energetic set pieces. Since Bohemian Rhapsody is a global blockbuster with nearly a billion dollars in ticket sales, we do well to acknowledge that future pop culture aficionados will watch Bohemian Rhapsody and accept it as historically true. This will to believe is strong because entertainment value often supersedes other details about the lives of real people depicted in any biopic. If we feel good, it must be true. Along these lines, Malek's performance is similar to that of Christian Bale's turn as Dick Cheney in Vice, Adam McKay, 2018. Both biopics offer well-known moments from the lives of famous men, and the fun is in watching how both movies present their protagonists as seedlings in the weeds rather than as the towering trees they now seem. For example, Bohemian Rhapsody gives us vignettes from Mercury's working-class immigrant background. We are flies on the wall as two of the original members of Queen, Roger Taylor, Ben Hardy, and Brian May, Gwillem Lee, hire Mercury. Our lead singer just quit. Well, then you'll need someone new. Any ideas? What about me? Uh, not with those teeth, mate. <laughs> I know what I 
I'm doing. I got a feeling I should be doing all right. Doing all right. <laughs> I was born with four additional incisors. More space in my mouth means more range. I'll consider your offer. From there, we enjoy the fashions of the times, giving us an impression of the backdrop for Queen's adventures, all of which sets up key moments in Mercury's emergence as pop phenom and fragile spirit before we finally get Queen's shatteringly good set in the Live Aid concert from 1985. All right! Everything in Bohemian Rhapsody looks and sounds authentic. A lot of post-production effort went into remastering Queen's singles to intermingle Malek with Mercury, the actor's voice blended into the singer's recordings. The plot and narrative beats also feel properly sewn up as idol worship, particularly since the surviving band members, Taylor May and John Deacon, Joe Mazzello in the movie, played a role in legitimizing this movie as an ode to their youth and as a celebratory epitaph for their deceased friend. Is the movie good? The question haunts me as I report that I saw Bohemian Rhapsody on home video with the sound turned up and I got the feels, even without a crowd to help improve my reaction. Yet my feelings are complicated because I don't remember a living Freddie Mercury, and my thoughts about his post-Live Aid life are colored by details of his demise that Bohemian Rhapsody mostly scrubs away in pursuit of a PG-13 rating. Another way to put it is that Bohemian Rhapsody works for people as a reassuring mass entertainment. It's a calculatedly commercial story that is community-oriented, particularly toward the value of friendship. The scenery and props, costumes and references are mostly historically correct, and the vibe is consistently on point. What makes Queen any different from all of the other wannabe rock stars I meet? I'll tell you what it is. We're four misfits who don't belong together, playing to the other misfits. The outcasts, right at the back of the room, who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. We're a family. But no two of us are the same. This on-the-nose moment, when a character is brought to life by a terrific performer, expresses the production staff's central theme, worried as they are that we might miss the point. The emphatic quality repeats itself in the script, perhaps most poignantly, as a father-son conflict only Freddie can heal by embracing his father and reciting a Zoroastrian maxim. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Just like you taught me, Papa. Scripted moments like this are clearly sentimental and manipulative. The purpose is to make people cry and love Freddie, although these moments gloss over other truths that were and are a part of the story, too. My relationship with Freddie Mercury begins before his death, but before I knew who he was because, at the time and in that place, I found him visibly intimidating, all those teeth and that skinny body. No doubt, younger me saw concert stills in any one of several glossy magazines I like to skim at 7-Eleven. The problem was, I didn't know any of the music being promoted, so I was only looking at the pictures for clues about 1980s styles of manhood, and I had no game for interpreting the layered meaning of Mercury's band's name, Queen. Listening to audio tapes purchased at Sam Goody, often from the catalog of Huey Lewis and the News, Van Halen, or U2, I didn't have access to MTV because my family couldn't pull cable into our home. This meant my musical taste was common. 
unrefined and ruled by the awkwardness of my early adolescence, which was fed by the three-minute singles on top 40 radio stations, and I was particularly susceptible to the power ballads by Air Supply. In my high school's marching band, where I played trombone, there were older boys with a much greater musical reach, and they taught bored underclass players like me the basic chant of We Will Rock You. I took to the womp womp clap in an unselfconscious kind of performative madness that helped me bond with the older kids and fill time while the football game unfolded. An upperclassman would stomp on an aluminum riser, womp. On field play slowed as players loped back to huddle. Another stomp on the riser, womp, womp. The rest of us clapped. We will, we will rock you, we sang, contented to wait for our halftime show to begin. This happened several times a game, and it never occurred to me that we were performing a globe-spanning ritual written by the guitar player for a band fronted by a Zanzibar-born queer kid. I'd never heard the song before in my life. It simply felt good to be part of the womp, womp clap. Flashback. I'm seven, and my dad is tired because my mom is pregnant. It's a weeknight, and the old man wants something to do, other than being the stay-at-home parent he is, worrying about laundry and waiting for the inevitable birth of my younger brother. Enter Flash Gordon. A bit of kitsch that I go to see with my dad at the Vineyard Twin. My first-hand memory of the movie is limited, but I recall a blonde hero, some alarming green blood, monsters, a winged people that took on a bald guy named Ming. Also, there was a rock soundtrack that made the whole strange movie scene even stranger. Flash forward. I'm 20, doing summer school to graduate college early. A friend invites me home for lunch, and we watch the second half of Flash Gordon. This time, I notice a singer's falsetto and the incongruity of a post-Star Wars fantasy movie that doesn't use a voiceless symphonic score. Plus, the movie is really terrible, but fun, too, and I try lining up puzzle pieces in an as-yet-unrecognized fascination with Queen, which means noticing Freddie Mercury. It also dawns on me that Queen made Bohemian Rhapsody, that weirdo segue in the middle of the previous year's Wayne's World, a movie that introduced the music video of the song to the world, fascinating me with its nonsense and shadows. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening I'd seen Wayne's World multiple times, with different sets of friends in different theaters, and nearly everyone I knew, my parents included, could spout dialogue and mouth lyrics to songs that had been popular before I'd ignored Live Aid to play at a friend's house. Flashback. Several months before Wayne's World's debut, in the fall of 1991, I hear that Freddie Mercury is dead in my RA's TV. Who is Freddie Mercury, I ask, and he dives in, explaining who Mercury was, what Queen was all about, the band's years of chart success and flamboyant celebrity, Mercury's homosexuality, the tragedy of AIDS. I did not think then, nor do I think now, that Queen's music is the greatest ever written, Under Pressure with David Bowie excluded. Under pressure, I didn't even put together that We Will Rock You was Queen until some time later on when someone showed me the track listing for News of the World. Yet I knew that there was something desperate and beautiful in the photographs I'd seen of Mercury in the final months of his life, the flotsam of MTV with shots of a sickly guy on the move. His wick was almost burned out, but he couldn't stop singing. Soon afterwards, I discovered Randy Schiltz, 
and learned about the stigmatic history of AIDS. At the same time, I acquired feelings of nostalgia for what had been lost to the disease, which was openly discussed in the mainstream, the details of sexual intimacy and public health explicitly mentioned as the substance of daily news. This was around the time when Magic Johnson retired from basketball because he was HIV positive, and soon after Greg Louganis hit his head on that diving board. This was also when faggot became hate speech, and when I became aware of the culture wars, as the boomers took over society to deal with all the freedoms and privileges they'd sundered from traditional community. It was a time of splintering, of enemy lists, parental warning stickers, and in-group, out-group hostility. The global AIDS pandemic seemed as likely an object example of a too permissive culture as any other trend could possibly be. Again, Mercury. While he'd become an influential songwriter with tracks like We Are the Champions and Crazy Little Thing Called Love, he'd also suffered through closeting part of his expressive identity. This was done through a long-term relationship with Mary Austin, played by Lucy Boynton in Bohemian Rhapsody, and through misdirection among people who assumed Mercury was behaving the way he was for shock value. Oh, that Freddie, the logic went. What a performer. He can't be as gay as he seems. Yes, Mercury was flamboyant, but he was also gay, which Bohemian Rhapsody acknowledges, firstly in a bathroom pickup scene with Adam Lambert, and later through a chaste kiss with Mercury's eventual longtime companion, Jim Hutton, played by Aaron McCusker. Current audiences may experience some confusion about how a man so seemingly out in terms of fashion and camp sensibility could be anything other than gay, but we must remember that Mercury never publicly outed himself. Bohemian Rhapsody mostly stays in the safe space and charts Mercury's rise to fame as someone physically awkward, musically gifted, and ethnically distinct who finds his way into the fold of misfit people. That his success coincides with the spread of AIDS is coincidental and unfortunate. The movie is straight with these facts, but it keeps at arm's length the physical world of queer intimacy, and that's a problem. Even a sheltered boy like me grew up hearing about Rock Hudson. Before I learned to diagram sentences, I was learning about the transmission pathways of AIDS. People regularly reported on unusual celebrity illnesses and occasionally printed stories about scientific breakthroughs, and I consumed it all because adult sex and sexuality frightened me. I now approach Mercury with years of consideration behind me. This cloud of influence complicates my reaction to Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's why the near-universal brilliance ascribed to it grates on me because I don't fully agree. What I feel, mostly, is disappointment, since Freddie Mercury is neutered into being just another outsider with a heart of gold. He's our hero, true, but it really is no small thing that an immigrant boy became a man who pursued one of the most publicly recognizable fields of professional accomplishment imaginable, and then, upon achieving fortune and fame, chose to explore his fluid, non-heterosexual identity in a time of virulent homophobia, xenophobia, and retrenched economic uncertainty. This was Freddie Mercury's milieu, and the movie touches upon it, but only lightly and without seeing that context as somehow definitive. To me, this series of contextual influences is the key to unlocking Mercury's association with Queen, to the development of modern pop music, to the expression of queerness that has, since AIDS was identified, been coded as diseased. Bohemian Rhapsody wraps a nice bow around the regressive idea gay equals deadly, and it piles on layers of sensual pleasure through the employ of highly skilled filmmakers and Malek's eerily spot-on reproduction. For example, there is a scene when Queen rehearses for Live Aid, and Freddie confides in the band. I've got it. Got what? 
AIDS. I wanted you to hear it from me. Fred, I'm so sorry. Brian, stop. Don't. But right now, it's between us. All right? Just us. So please, if any of you fuss about it or frown about it, or worst of all, if you bore me with your sympathy, that's just seconds wasted. Seconds that could be used making music, which is all I want to do with the time I have left. I don't have time to be their victim, their AIDS poster boy, their cautionary tale. No, I decide who I am. I'm going to be what I was born to be, a performer who gives the people what they want. Touch the heavens. This is a tragic moment turned into an affirmation of individual strength, and it's draped in all the necessary design elements to sell us on Freddy's news, although it's a total invention that has nothing to do with the historical truth. Aside from the bathroom scene with Adam Lambert and some gossipy dialogue about Freddy's sexual exploits, we get no impression that Mercury was ever physically intimate with anyone other than Mary, with whom he has a post-coital layabout, and later on Jim, who he kisses and holds hands with. There was also no suggestion that Freddie shot intravenous drugs. This means his only AIDS risk is the fatal attraction of gay sex, or so the movie implies, rather than explore how the post-Stonewall period allowed new forms of gay love, affection, and presence to confront a global civilization seemingly bent on destroying all things queer. The problem may lie with Freddie Mercury, who didn't live long enough to champion antiviral research or activate himself in the political struggle for LGBTQ civil rights. He was just a pop star and icon. Plus, these other story strands aren't nearly as photogenic as a shot-for-shot reconstruction of Freddie, Brian, Roger, and John playing Radio Gaga at Wembley Stadium. There is a larger point here. Freddie Mercury became wealthy and well-traveled along precisely the same trade routes and lines of infection that spread HIV across the globe. Flying to and from the most populous cities in the world, enjoying people and the pleasure those people presented him, led Mercury into becoming a symbol for the last group of people in history to fall into the maw of AIDS before the disease was even identified and before enough other people were organized well enough to change the narrative of the disease for long-term survival. That Brian Singer and his crew couldn't satisfy my needs to answer all these layers of the Freddie Mercury story isn't exactly a failure of imagination or technical execution. Bohemian Rhapsody is competently made. It is a marvel to look at and listen to, and I enjoyed myself while the lights were low and the volume up. It's just that Freddie Mercury and Queen led messy, complicated, R-rated lives that do not fit neatly into the slot of a PG-13 tentpole entertainment.
Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boopity-doo!